Good morning, competitor. On today's brand new Compete Everyday podcast, I'm sitting down with executive coach Andy Elwood to talk about a life of curiosity, why that curiosity is so vital to not only leading and developing our people, but ultimately to our growth personally throughout life. Andy shares his journey from homeschooling to Texas A&M to New York City, where he's worked with a ton of startups, including ones that were bought out by Facebook Meta and Google. And he shares some of the work he's doing now as an executive coach, not giving great advice, but why he's focused on asking great questions and how you and your work today could benefit from that shift to more curiosity in helping to develop the people that you're leading and managing. My name is Jake Thompson, your Chief Encouragement Officer, and this is the Compete Everyday Podcast, a show designed to encourage and equip you with the tools to build a winning mindset so you can build your winning life. Text PODCAST to 972-945-9113 to join our Morning Motivation Club and visit CompeteEveryday.com for past podcast episodes and to learn more about our resources and gear for ambitious people who are ready to start winning. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Dude, I'm uh, excited for the conversation. Obviously, shout out to Dr. Eric Quorum for introducing us. Obviously, your college roommate uh, here in Texas at Texas A&M. Uh, and now, now you're in New York City. You're coaching, you're leading leaders, uh, and really looking forward to today's conversation, mainly because I think a lot of our audience fit right into the wheelhouse of the groups you work with. Uh, those leaders on the ascent, as you mentioned, the leaders that are making those key transitions throughout the course of a career that set us up for success. Before we dive into that work, I want to kind of pull back some and, and learn a little bit more about your journey post, say, AM. Because as I was doing my work uh, and research preparing today, looking through LinkedIn, I was fascinated at some of the through lines I saw with your work in terms of, of service, whether that's to the university, whether that's in a nonprofit space. So take me back to this idea of a life of service and maybe when you first started thinking about living that way or were aware of it, and then follow me a little bit through your career to this point. Yeah, I am very grateful to have seen it modeled for me, uh, both by my parents and then the communities that I grew up with you know, in North Texas. Um, I had the very unique privilege of being homeschooled uh, through high school graduation. And so when I got to Texas A&M, I went from a class of one to a class of 400. And, uh, but, but, very thankfully, my my parents had raised me, you know, to be really curious and curious about their friends and what like my parents' adult friends were good at. My parents always used to tell me, if there's something that you want to learn and we don't know how to teach you, we will help you find one of our friends that does know how to do that and let them actually give you the hands-on instruction. You know, I remember, you know, shout out Jim Cowles, my dad's friend, who came over and spent an entire Saturday with me rebuilding the carburetor my 1985 Chevy uh, Silverado. Uh, I I was determined to be the guy who worked on my truck. You know, I bought, I paid for my truck on my 16th birthday. Started saving. When I was 14. Had a lawn mowing business, that, like everybody in North Texas. Uh, but bought that truck, and I was like, I'm not going to take it to the mechanics. I'm going to figure it out on my own. My dad's like, I can't help you, but Jim can. 
And that was kind of the way that I was raised was everybody has something that they could teach you. And so when I got to college, I was just really curious about all these other people who had had a very different high school experience than me. And it just sent me down a bunch of really cool leadership rabbit holes uh, where I just kept asking questions and people were like, man, this guy really cares a lot about everybody. And it was, uh, I do, but I'm also just really curious. I'm also really competitive. Like I want to understand what makes them the best. And if they've got something that they're really good at, I might not become the best at it, but I can learn something from them and I can become better at it. And that kind of parlayed into studying finance at Texas A&M and being curious about what would be the best jump off point post-college for me in building a career that started with you know some curiosity, some being competitive. And so that jumped me into selling life insurance as my first job out of college, uh, which as Zig Ziglar used to say, if you can sell life insurance, you can sell anything. Um, everything is easier to sell than life insurance. And uh, I was apparently pretty good at it because I was the number one life insurance salesman in America my first year out of college amongst my peers and had a lot of fun, but got pretty clear that that wasn't what I wanted to do for my whole career and was fortunate to be recruited from there to go sell private jets for Warren Buffett's company, Marquee Jet. Uh, It was an amazing way to spend my mid-20s cold calling celebrities and athletes and business owners in the North Texas area. And they were to take my calls, right? I had access to private jets that they wanted to fly on. And that's a very different uh, type of sales process than selling life insurance, to say the least. Life insurance, nobody really wanted to take my phone calls. Yep. Private jets, a lot of people wanted to take my phone calls. <laughs> that's right. And it, and so just kind of, that, you know, just understanding how to take what I'd learned from selling life insurance to then parlay it into you know, selling luxury and selling to the top 1% of the 1% uh, was, you know, just another evolution in that story. And fortunately, kind of that curiosity, my clients, my private jet clients were kind enough to share some of the things that had made them able to afford a private jet, able to take their families on vacations, you know, flying private and not having to take their shoes off at DFW uh, like everybody else. And one of my clients, I was telling him some crazy stories about some of the Dallas Cowboys that I'd worked with and some of the Dallas Mavericks that I'd worked with and the billionaire hedge fund guy that nobody really knew was a billionaire, but he lived in Dallas and flew private with me. And one of my clients said, Andy, that's really cool, but my limo driver tells better stories. Stop limo driving your way through life. If you think you have what it takes to be the man, don't settle for knowing the man. And that was kind of a, a kick in the pants that I needed. And the company was based in New York City. And I was up in New York City all the time for meetings with my boss and training and things on those lines. And I said, you know what? Dallas will be here. But I, if I'm going to kind of go for it, I'm going to do it in you know the biggest stage in the world. And that was 14 years ago. Uh, moved to New York City without a job or a place to live. And as I was driving through Tennessee with a U-Haul with half of my, world, my worldly possessions, because I left the other half in Texas... Uh, I got a call from a friend who said, hey, we're doing this startup and we need somebody who knows how to sell stuff. And I said, sign me up. Let's do it. And that was that was the first startup that I was a part of. Uh, and we were fortunate to sell that to Facebook uh, pre-IPO, which is like a wild long time ago. Um, and I got picked up. Uh, instead of joining Facebook, I, got, I joined a company called Waze, yep. uh, the traffic and navigation app. Um, they were a small little startup in Israel. And so I opened the New York office for them and helped run global partnerships. 
and sales uh, up until our acquisition by Google. And after selling the first company I was a part of to Facebook and the second company I was a part of to Google, I said, startups are easy. Everyone should do this. And started a third one, which got bought less than two years later by a private equity company. And I'm like, three for three, what could possibly go wrong? And put everything all in on the next company that didn't work and learned a lot about the challenging moments, uh, learned a lot about dealing with the mental and the spiritual and the emotional side of failure, uh, pretty pretty epic, pretty public failure. Um, and it was kind of in that process of, of winding down my involvement with that company after seven years and $40 million uh, raised that we, uh, I was recruited to become an executive coach. And found my, my ability to hold space for others to step into their greatness was my zone of genius. Uh, my zone of competency was selling, was raising money, was building companies. Uh, my zone of genius is being able to, to give people the space to step into their calling and their greatness uh, and be uh, maybe a little bit, a little bit of an intellectual sparring partner along the way, something that I truthfully didn't have, uh, but I wish I would have if I was going to go do my entrepreneurial journey all over again. So let me ask you along that as well, because the the work side has has fascinated me. Obviously, success on success for years. Two two pieces of this. You've also been heavily involved outside of work with give yeah. back programs. Uh sure. obviously AM chapters, the hands offering Hope Foundation. I know Absolutely. you're also involved, I think, in with Hillsong uh there yeah. in New York. A lot of times, especially when you're having that success. And for lack of a better phrase, I'll say uh, the wealth, the worldly success, all of that. It's easy to focus exclusively on that. Yet, based on what I'm learning and what I learned prior, is you still found time for other opportunities that weren't, quote, make me money. Why Was that related to your curiosity? Was that related to a calling to something more? Tell me where you made the time for that. Because most people, especially we know the entrepreneurial game, you're going all the time. The clock, like it's not an eight to five. You're working more hours than that a lot of times, especially around that space. It's very easy to tell yourself you don't have the time for these things until quote later. But I see yeah. through lines throughout your career where you made time for priorities that weren't necessarily financially driven. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. I wish I had hobbies. Would be my my short answer. I, I wish I could sit and do something that's not building. Yep. Uh, but it's it's the thing that I just love to do. I love to see people coming together around something to become an even better something. And I found that volunteering, um, serving on boards, being involved in my church, being involved in my alumni organization was the hobby that worked for me, which was being of service, hosting, convening, bringing people together, um, you know, I became an amateur chef, you know, uh, after I got divorced in 2015 and had to figure out how to cook and decided if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it really well. And it spent a lot of time, um, figuring out, you know, what I could do in New York city and to bring people together around food and have that be kind of my gift that I would offer up. Um, I started using the hashtag chef Andy on my Instagram 
And some of my new friends did not know I was not actually a chef and asked me <laughs> to come uh, cook for 40 people at a nonprofit dinner where the, the chef had canceled. They're like, would you volunteer your chefing services? And I was like, absolutely. And then I figured out how to cook for 40 people um, from my small little one bedroom uh, West Village apartment. And, and, and it was just kind of the curiosity around what, what, like what could happen? What could happen if we just pushed the envelope? Um, so some of it was curiosity, but it was also some of it was, that's how I knew I could be in, involved in something that wasn't just working all the time. Um, and I just really love people. Um, you know, I love being around people. I get energy for people. Like if I have a bad day, all I want to do is walk to Washington Square Park and sit on a bench and just watch New York happen, right? I I, I want to be by myself, but I don't want to be alone. Yep. And that's something that I've, I've learned about myself that to recharge, I need to be around people a lot. And so, you know, I have a 70 pound rescue dog and, you know, he and I are, you know, we have a pretty routine walk in the morning at lunch and in, in the evening. And so the West village is my neighborhood and I know the shop owners and I know the chefs and I know everybody in the neighborhood because I'm also thinking about like, how does this organism that I benefit from living in get better? Right. I know the homeless people like, you know, there's a certain cadence I have with you know, the people that you know, deliver things like it's just I'm really curious about people all around. And if I can find ways to do small things that are of service, um, I try to or get involved in, things, in groups that are doing big things of service and try and bring a little bit of the entrepreneurial mindset to, hey, but what if we didn't just try and grow 5% this year, but what if we tried to buy a whole new campus and build a culinary institute in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, like we did with Hands Offering Hope? Like those are the types of things that get me really excited. Love that. So two of the things you said there really stood out to me and, and I'm curious on the first, the chef Andy cracks me up because it reminds me of, I don't know if you, I think it's Meron's, Meron's Steakhouse in New York. Do you hear about this last September? It was a fake yes, steakhouse, yeah, the fake yeah, restaurant. Like yeah, the friends, yeah. for those listening, like <laughs> Google this, but these friends had essentially included like this fake address of like a steakhouse whenever they do takeout and stuff with each other. And more and more people started signing up for this guest list. And so all of these friends created this one night dining experience at this like quote five star. So I laugh because it was a huge joke and people didn't know like the wait list was thousands deep. So I hear that chef Andy and I was like, my head immediately goes there with New York. <laughs> the The second thing you said, I'm really curious about reflecting back on your uh, journey and in, in the startup space. You talked a lot about this theme of curiosity and I'm curious looking back on say the last startup, the one that didn't work. Yeah. Was there something looking back you learned where you maybe got away from curiosity or were curious about the wrong things that reflecting back on, you're like, that's a big lesson that I know now going forward. Um, because I'm curious about a lot of times startups and things work and fail for a variety of reasons. And we see it and you probably see it all the time as an executive coach. Sometimes ego leads us down certain paths. Sometimes it's not. And so I'm curious as someone driven by curiosity, looking back on that situation, was there something where you're like, mm, I missed that from being curious or I was curious about the wrong things? Or was it just something completely different? Yeah, I, I love that question uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, it, I think that it was a combination of a black swan event that we could have never planned for. And there's yep. literally nothing we could have done to prevent. But there, is uh, 
flares or caution signs that if we probably had been more thoughtful about it and, and slowed down just long enough to ask one more question, we probably would have been more prepared for the Black Swan event. So uh, we had an amazing initial investor. He was our, our our family and friends around seed round and series A, right? So he yep. had put a lot of money into this company and had basically things were going so well that he said, when well, it's time for your next round, your series B, like I, like I want it. Like, don't talk to anybody else. Like I'm going to like, I'm doubling down. I'm with you guys. Like, let's go. Um, he was six, he was 68 years old. And so this was his last fund. And he was like, this is the last company that I'm going to, I'm just going to go all in on and ride off into the sunset. Like he'd already bought his vineyard upstate in California. Like he was, you know, it was just him. Like he, he, yeah. he'd already bought out the rest of his partners in the fund. And he, had told us pretty explicitly don't talk to other investors like i've got this with me and my friends and our funds the we had launched a huge uh huge new product you know a million dollars in our first quarter like we were on a pretty good trajectory but like we burned through a lot of cash to get it launched the way that we we did and we had not put any time into maintaining other investor relationships and on his birthday, or, or investor's birthday, he had his birthday party in San Francisco over lunch. And then he and his best friend, who was another one of our investors, got in his small little plane, and they were going to fly up to his vineyard to have his birthday dinner. And they never made it. The plane crashed, and both of them passed away. And with it, took about 40% of our cap table and investment. Yep. And we had counted on their involvement going forward. And so I think the thing that... You know, to answer your question, like there's nothing we could have done about that. Yeah. You know, the the insane plane crash, and you know, we went from having a team of forty to having the team of seven in less than a year. Um, but we could have been more curious about who else might have been able to benefit, might have been beneficial for us to have, you know, at least familiar with the company. So if yeah. something happened to Jeff, which is what happened. Uh, there could have been at least a a warm phone call to make. It didn't have to be you know hot and heavy. They, you know they're trying to come in and you know be a part of the next round. But we were calling people who'd never heard of us, right? Because we were just coming out, you know, with with our revenue, just coming out with what we were building, and uh, it got pretty messy when forty percent of the cap table was not represented. And that's something that uh, won't happen again if I ever if I ever build another company. That's for sure. Very much understandable. Appreciate you sharing that. Um, I want to switch gears now because you said you were recruited into coaching and it takes a little curiosity to change directions. We'll say from, especially when you've been pursuing a path for a while of working in these startups, building businesses to shifting gears out of, as we talked about a little bit, you go from kind of building teams, organizations to really a lot of one-on-one -on -one work with the person who has to go build the teams and the organizations. What attracted you to that coaching process? Um, and I'm curious now, one of the things that we kind of mentioned off air is the idea of the ascent. And obviously, Crux Point Leadership Studio is your coaching practice. And you love this idea of identifying kind of a peak point. And so talk to me what you love about the coaching process now. What was that pull in? And then why specifically this focal point has become what your business is about? Yeah, the... I was recruited into coaching by a friend of mine who's an executive coach and he and I were having coffee one day and he was talking about being the CEO of a coaching firm. So he's a coach, but he also you know, runs the 
arguably the number one coaching firm in San Francisco in Silicon Valley. And I, we were just having a conversation and I was talking to him, you know, like one entrepreneur to another. And at the end, he's, he said something about, you know, that's one of the best coaching sessions I've ever, I've ever had. You know, how long have you been a coach? You know, he was a new, a new friend at the time. And I was, I was like, Oh, I'm not a coach. He goes, yeah, you are. And, and he saw it in me and, and he, he, he said, he said, you may not have like the, the methodologies. You may not have like the, the, you know, the shifts uh, that some of the coaches that I've worked with for a long time do, but you're a coach. And so he said, yeah, there's a, there's a weekend seminar that is, I recommend everybody, you know, go to, you know, go to it. And if at the end of the weekend, you don't see what I see, I'll, I'll pay for your tuition. And so I said, okay, deal. You know, and a couple weeks later, you know, went to this thing. They happened to be coming to, you know, this group happened to be coming to New York. And by the end of it, I was like, oh, I've been coaching for like 20 years. I just didn't call it coaching. I just called it being friends with founders. And what I, what changed was that I used to get paid as a consultant or an advisor to have really good answers. And now as a coach, I get paid for having really good questions. That my job is to help my clients get to an answer that is their answer to the question, not the answer that everybody else is telling them it should be. Because even if it is, even if it rhymes with the answers that are in Harvard Business Review books or the best-selling, you know, uh, self-help book that's out there, they need to be able to go to their team, to their investors, to media, to their business partners and say, here's why this is my answer because oh yeah my coach told me isn't gonna fly in a nope. board meeting right oh yeah andy said isn't gonna fly in front of investors they and being able to hold the space for them to get to that answer on their own allows them the ability to have that neural pathway back to discovering that answer again if they're in a situation where they don't have the ability to phone a friend you know, I do a lot of what I call on-demand coaching, right? In between my two sessions with my clients each month, I get a lot of texts and emails and, and a few yep. phone calls where they're like, hey, remind me of that thing. And that's fine. But that's when you've got the time to be able to do it. In the moment, on, on-demand leadership is usually not the ability to step out and call your coach real quick. you got to be able to get there in, uh, on your own. And that's one of my favorite things to do. So, you know, when we're doing, we do two one hour sessions a month with my clients and I call that the container. And I say, this is a space that we can like detonate whatever bombs you want to. And it's just you and me. You can say anything in this container and no one else will ever know because it's just us. You can say things that you could never say to your investors. You could never say to your business partner. You could never say it to your team. You could never say to your spouse sometimes. Right. I'm worried about this. I'm scared of this. This is coming up on me again and again, and I don't know what to do. And in that one hour, my job is to hear all of it, guide a conversation with the right questions so that you're at you know, minute 59, we're zipping back up and we're back out on the field, you know, coming out of the tent as if there was never any injury to talk about. And that's what is addictive to me now, having been the wounded and injured player that needed help getting off the field before, to be able to have the ability in that one hour to do the high-flying, death-defying magic trick 
sometimes is what it feels like of getting somebody ready to run back into a burning building that is their startup, knowing that they are more equipped and have a better chance at finding solutions with their team is the most scalable work I can possibly do without starting my own company again, right? The At this point, almost a thousand employees of people that I coach, I get to impact their lives directly by impacting their leaders. You know, the thing you said there and and a couple of, of things that stand out that I really want to emphasize that a lot of our listeners have heard is the idea of, of what you said about asking the really good questions. And part of that, obviously, looking back, you easily connect the dots as being a homeschooled, super curious child who grew up asking questions. And so you learn which questions to ask and go through the motion. But our natural tendency, a lot of times, especially in a leadership position, I can say this, especially as a husband sometimes, is I see the problem. Let me tell you what the solution is. And that doesn't ever go well. It doesn't go well in a marriage sense, but it doesn't benefit your team or the people you're trying to manage. And essentially leadership is coaching, uh, coaching up those people because they didn't formulate it. They didn't learn it. They didn't grasp this. It's like the teacher telling you the answer versus asking you to come up and explain it on the whiteboard. And you have to come up and think through the process. And so I loved how you position that and obviously love how looking back the connection of the dots uh, is there from that, that process of curiosity. Now, what I'm curious about is there's a lot of different, there's tons of different executive coaching programs. There's tons of different ways people approach it. You very specifically laughed at like your point is you're really good at, at helping people or the most common is where they got to be able to go all in on something or essentially get off the pot. How do you identify that, especially with a lot of executives in that workflow of, you're just kind of going, you're going with it. You're going through the motions. Yeah. You don't know that there's a go all in or get off the way. You're just trying to get through the day or build something. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, 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 the ritual that meeting with me twice a week creates for a lot of clients is that ability to take a deep breath. They know it's coming, right? So, you know, one of the things that I do with all my clients, we have a running collaborative agenda, that is everything we want to talk about in the hour. And, and we build it together on the Monday of coaching week. And so I, I send my thoughts, they send their thoughts, and then I orchestrate it to make sure we get through everything in, in an hour. But that collaborative agenda is kind of you know our agreement of this is what we're going to dive into. But my job is to also find the through lines from week to week, from month to month, to say this keeps coming up and I want to spend some time there. And being able to see around corners that they can't see. And that's that's the work that I do, right? Like I'm probably their most expensive meeting of the week. But I want them to bring their most expensive problems into that meeting. 100%. And that's why I'm able to do the work that I do is because they're showing up with the intention that this had better be worth my time. There's skin in the game on their part and they're skin in the game on my part to make sure that I'm delivering that much value in an hour. And in that hour, also asking them, hey, you know, are we taking care of the things that other people don't see? The things that nobody sees, you know, first thing in the morning, the things nobody sees late at night, the things nobody sees when you know you're not on Slack or an email or in front of the team, you know, I'm not going to be the person who's telling you you need a yoga practice. 
right? You need to do breath work every day. But I'm also going to say, is that helpful for you to be a better leader? Let's think about it. There is a piece of the puzzle that maybe we're not talking about. And that's really kind of the blindside work that I, I try to do is, is see it around those corners. I also do a lot of, of 360s on behalf of my clients where I'm aggressively interviewing people in their life to look for things that they that they wouldn't be able to see. I only do that after I've worked with a client for a couple months because I want to make sure that when I'm calling their colleagues or their boss or their investors or their board members and saying, hey, tell me about Jake. I'm asking very pointed questions. And when they say a polite answer, I can be like, cool, I'm going to stop you right there. Now tell me the real truth. What's it actually like when he gets angry? What's it actually like trying to get him to follow through on a deadline? What is it actually like when this circumstance happens and really pulling those things out because I want to know for the benefit of my client, the things that they maybe just haven't had time to hear from others. And then I want to show them, Hey, all of this wisdom was sitting right there in your, the people that you talk to every single day, but somehow you were not open to it. You were not curious enough for it, or you did not give space for it to be shared with you. And I want to encourage you that all of these people are committed to you being even better at what you do, but you just need to have a posture of accepting, a posture of curiosity about your greatness that these other people see in you. And that's one of the, one of my favorite things to be able to do is, is kind of present the 360 to them and have them just be like, wait, these people really care about me being even better than I am. I don't have to be as afraid as I have been of their feedback of, of them seeing my weakness. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the vulnerability piece, right? That's the huge from a connection, being able to influence, to be able to grow. One of the things I know that ties into that and and it's partly, it's kind of the self-awareness, right? Knowing yourself is key throughout this process and then being okay to not be perfect, right? We all know we're not perfect. Uh, however, we try to, for most people put on that perfect front, we lead with ego. For somebody listening, for one of our leaders listening, that is kind of maybe struck with this idea of, of what you just said, the curiosity about yourself, of, of learning some things, or the idea of pursuing the path of knowing yourself. Because you're like, oh, I know myself, but like, do you really? How do you tend to encourage people to start the process of better knowing themselves? Obviously, hiring a coach is a great first step to start that. But initially, what is maybe one daily practice, weekly practice that you have found helpful into better knowing yourself? Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of journaling. Um, I have, actually, you can see them over, over my shoulder here. Uh, for those that can't yep. see, I've got a stack of uh, 19 journals over my shoulder um, that I truly I reference on a daily basis. Um because I remember there was a certain thing that was happening and I wanted to, what was I thinking when I was going through that process, when I was launching that company, when I was failing at that company, when I was ending a relationship, whatever it might be. And getting comfortable just writing a sentence, just a sentence, like just a sentence a day, all of a sudden turns into two sentences, turns into three or four. Um, I've come to realize that my journals are almost like an external hard drive that I was able to clear my mind of the thought, like the thought that I don't actually really want to hold much. I don't even want it to hold much weight, but I put it in my journal and I said, I'm not sure if this is a thing, but if it is, I can come back to it. And then it is now no longer on my mainframe. 
right? I outsourced it to that piece of paper. It is now something that I know about myself. Like I slowed down long enough. And that for me for a long time was my main reason for journaling was I could not tell you what I thought. But if I wrote it down in the journal, I, I slowed my body long enough. I slowed my mind down long enough to actually crystallize and to metabolize all the different things that were racing through my mind about a certain subject. And in doing so, I've gotten to know myself pretty well. I've gotten to know myself really well to the point that my wife teases me, oh, just go journal. And and she's true, right? You know, I've got you know, stacks of journals around the apartment. I have journals going back to 1997 um, wow. when I was in high school. And, you know, but my journaling practice is really something that's, you know, been the past 15, 16 years. Um, and and I think that, that I've been able to sit through tougher things because of it, but I've been able to show up in bigger ways also because of it. Yeah, that's that's a really good point of not only showing up, but the the event, I mean, God, 20, 35 years, roughly. What is that? Yeah. 30, yeah, 30 years almost. Uh, yeah. Almost 30 years. My math's terrible today. Uh, of evidence. But what I love about journaling, not only is you just said, hey, I can go back and look at what I was thinking that day, what I was feeling. It's got to be helpful probably during your tough times when you were going with through the, the loss of that startup and transition periods after a divorce to look back and reflect on who you were then and how much you've grown now. Yeah. And that, that almost confidence building of like, oh, I went through this. I thought this was terrible. I'm going through this. I think this is terrible. If I went through that and got through it, I have confidence I can get through this. Yeah. 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 I, I, I forget who posted it, but somebody, somebody shared the other day, you have a perfect record of surviving the worst day of your life. That's right. Because if you don't, you're not here. <laughs> right. If you're here, the you've gone through multiple worst days of your life and you came out the other side. And I know exactly which journal I would open and exactly which page I would turn to on exactly which date that was the few times that I was like, wow, that was pretty much the worst day of my life. And the clarity that comes in the journals, journal pages immediately following is pretty wild, right? Sometimes it is just leaning into the bounce, right? I heard somebody say, if you're going to hit rock bottom, hit it as hard as you can so you bounce. Right. That's a good way to look like at it. That yep. that you know, if if you're gonna do it, like know you're there. Like, no, this is it. Right. I remember the first time when it was building companies that my bank account hit zero. And I just was like, I was like, well, now I know what that feels like. Let's not do it again. And I did it, it never happened again. Right. But I but I was but I like, but like I paused just long enough to be like, that's what this is. Right. And it was bad and not great. And three days later, the, you know, the, the check cleared. But like for those three days, like I just got creative about what I ate at home and I didn't put any gas in my car. You know, I still went out and hustled my brain out and nobody else knew that that's what was going on. But I was like, wow, I can roll with this. Huh. I can still show up to the next thing with this. Interesting. Right. When I got divorced, I was at, the holiday party and and my wife didn't come right the holiday party of my of my startup mm -hmm. and everybody's like where where's where's your wife and i was like oh sorry yeah we got divorced last month they're like i'm sorry what i was, I was like it wasn't important to bring to the office 
Now that's a little bit too despondent, if yep. I'm being honest. But but I can point back and I I remember that's how like that's how separated I used to be from like personal and business. You know, I'm yep. much more, you know, like my wife is up in my business uh, you know, in a great way, you know, like this morning she saw me writing something and, and she just saw like one phrase that I was, you know, was up on my monitor and she's like that go deeper on that. And I was like, fantastic. You know, and I, I help her with her, her business when I get the chance as well. And, and that's a lot of fun, you know, to be in a, you know, a relationship where that's possible, but it's, but I know how good it is because I'm, I have the receipts yep. of how bad it used to be of how bad it has been. And I think that that's, you know, one of the most encouraging things, you know, going back to the, the practice of journaling, to going back to the, the practice of knowing yourself is when you can actually slow down long enough to really crystallize, how do I feel in this moment? You have something to compare it to when things are different. 100%. Actually, it's funny you say that. I gave a keynote uh, late September to a group of small business owners and coaching program. I knew the owners, but I was essentially, I got on stage and for the first time ever to anyone, I just kind of felt led to, I mean, it was a journal. It was essentially my lowest period in business when I thought I was going bankrupt. We were skipping like all of that lowest of lowest points. I wrote this long letter to myself and it was like on a company anniversary and it was just deep, dark. I got to get this out. And I always save it in my phone and I go back and reference it every year on our birthday as the reminder, this is where I was. And I got on stage and I was like, business is hard. Like you may see the now, but let me tell you about a little bit on the when. And I just kind of read it. And afterwards, like people were like, oh, and I was like, you got to write these things, one, to get them out. But two, to your point, to go back and look at sometimes. And be honestly, be grateful for the continued part of the journey and the lessons you've learned since then. I know what that feels like. I'm not going back there. Nope. And so I loved how you phrased that and, and how it connected with me and, and some of the things that I had talked about recently too. Andy, dude, this has been a blast. Uh, for any of our leaders and executives listening that are interested in learning more, some about your programs, about uh, what you're doing right now with, with Crux Leader, Crux, excuse me, Crux Point Leadership, Tell us where's the best place to one, learn about your coaching programs. And then I know you do a lot of writing and stuff as well. Where's the best place to read some of the content you're putting out about making room? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, cruxpoint.co is the leadership studio. Uh, you can find out about one-on-one executive coaching, cohort coaching, uh, do a ton of company offsites with executives or with full full companies. So a lot, a lot more information there about the leadership studio. And then I also have a weekly newsletter for people that are curious, the most curious community on the internet. And that's called makeroom.fm. Uh, there's a, a quote by Emerson that says, "A man of there will always be room for a man of force, for he makes room for many. So make room for many is the name of the community. And it's a, every, I, I, I write it as if it was a, an invitation to a dinner party. And I'm sharing the topics that I would want to talk about over dinner with you this week. Love it. Love it. Andy, man, thanks for coming on the show this week. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. To get in touch with the team, drop us an email to podcast at competeeveryday.com. 
and to find out more about our resources, content, and gear that will help you build that winning mindset so you better compete for your best life, visit CompeteEveryday.com.